every day uh, reading about or watching things about um, COVID-19 pandemic or scrolling through social media, we are met with a barrage of information, of graphs, of data, of hot takes, of opinion writing, of reporting. Uh, It is just overwhelming. Um, This story is multifaceted. It touches nearly every aspect you can think of, of society, of culture, of the economy, um, of international relations, um, it crosses borders, it crosses people, class, race. There are so many elements to this. And within that maelstrom, there have been various different approaches, of course, made by countries to um, tackle the pandemic. Um, some of them we see in chaos, such as the US or the UK. Um, some of them are still going through the aftermath and the continuation, actually, of vicious, vicious um, consequences of the pandemic, such as Italy and uh, Spain and France. Other countries you hear about who are maybe more prepared due to their experience with SARS, such as Taiwan, um, Hong Kong, Singapore, and so on. And within this is Sweden. Um, And we've been hearing lots about it in terms of their approach, which uh, seems to be a less severe lockdown um, than other countries. And yet their hospitals have not been completely overwhelmed uh, like the ones in Italy, for example. That said, uh, they're not exactly earning a gold star in terms of the uh, cost of human tragedy. But there are interesting, interesting things um, to look at. Now, when I've been kind of trying to read about it, I haven't really been able to get a handle on, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Are they being reckless? Um, Do they have more information than other places? So in order to clear this up for myself um, and also for our listeners, I got in touch with a really, really great uh, journalist called Philip O'Connor. Uh, he's an Irish guy. He lives in Sweden um, and he is a broadcaster. He has the um, Armand in Stockholm podcast, um, which I was on the latest episode, if you want to check that out. Um, and on Twitter as well, which is was my entry point um, for his work. Uh, he just says some like really interesting things. So um, basically, we have uh, Philip on this bonus uh, podcast where he lays out the land of what's been happening in Sweden from his own reporting um, at the genesis of the outbreak of the pandemic in the country to what cultural, social, historical and bureaucratic factors have informed their approach, whether or not it's working, what they got right and what they haven't and what other countries can learn from it. This is a fascinating um, conversation, mostly on Philip's side. Uh, he does most of the talking, thankfully. And I think if you've been wondering about this, you know, Sweden question, um, you'll really, really learn a lot. Uh, so enjoy this uh, bonus podcast. Thank you to all of our patrons and Patreon, as per usual, patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. And if you want to... Um, communicate with Philip. Uh, he shouts at his own uh, Twitter at the end of this podcast, but um, he is uh, Philip O'Connor, uh, simple as, two ends in the O'Connor on Twitter. Um, and uh, his podcast is called Armand in Stockholm. You can listen to that on Spotify or or other places. Um, and if you go on his Twitter, you can also buy him a coffee and support Armand in Stockholm. He's got his link in the bio there. 
So, Philip O'Connor talking about Sweden on United Ireland. Here we go. So, Philip, how long have you lived in Sweden? Would you say you're au fait with the ins and outs of the society and culture? Well, I would hope after almost 21 years over here that I've learned a, a thing or two as we go, Una, you know. I'd say I am because it's one of those things that when I moved over here in 1999, in the summer of 1999, I wanted to kind of fit in, right? And I don't mean that from, oh, please like me. I mean, I wanted to understand the society that I was living in. I didn't want to be the expat sitting at the bar with a pint of Guinness going, oh you know I wish it was a home if I was going to live abroad I wanted to feel part of wherever I was so I kind of set about learning the language reasonably quickly um, luckily, it has a lot of German in it, a lot of French in it. It even has a little bit of the Gaelic in it as well, because, of course, the Vikings uh, came to Ireland in the ninth century. And, you know, so things like bold, which is table in Irish, is the same thing in Swedish, you know. So I set about learning that, but also the cultural context. So, so you know, getting into music, getting into soccer and that kind of thing. And just to understand, you know, what people, you know, what people here are like, what they think about, what motivates them. And that really has been, you know, the crux of the work that I've done over the last 20 years in, in communications and in journalism. So for the last 10 years, I've been freelancing uh, across the Nordic region, a lot of it has to do with sport, but also general news. So I would have worked on everything from, you know, Zlatan Ibrahimovic is a very famous footballer from this part of the world to Anders Bering Breivik and the attack that he perpetrated in Norway, general elections, you know, all sorts of research things. I mean, one of the places that we're going to talk about will certainly be mentioned a little bit later on is the Karolinska Institute, which is not too far from where I live. So I'd be down there doing stories about science and innovation. And, you know, I was filming these mo- the most deadly malaria mosquitoes going and all sorts of weird stuff you know so yeah I would hope that I have something to bring to the table in terms of helping people to understand Sweden uh, who the Swedish people are and why they do what they do at times like this Mm. So let's go back to um, I suppose we could go back to this kind of around the start of February and it is becoming apparent um, that this is not going to be a situation confined to a place that before it was uh, all over the news that not many people outside of um, that part of the world would have heard of Wuhan. And it becomes apparent that, in fact, there are cases emerging in Europe. What was the position um, and the and the kind of general national attitude taken at that time in Sweden from both the people in authority in terms of, you know, the, the scientists who were going to be brought in uh, by the government and also the general public. I think one of the odd things about this society is that it's very, very organised, right? So, you know, those of us who've grown up in Ireland, a lot of the time you're going, you're asking the question, who's responsible for this? And there is no answer because nobody is, right? But in Sweden, there's always a bloke or there's always a woman somewhere whose job it is to sort of, you know, to look after the issue that you've just brought up, right? So, you know, it's amazing that like the level of sort of bureaucracy would drive you bananas. I remember when I was moving over here, there's a friend of mine, is, um, he was a very competitive Irish swimmer named Earl McCarthy and Earl held many Irish records. He competed at the Olympics for Ireland and that kind of thing. And his coach was a a Swedish guy called Glenn Christensen. And Glenn sent a message via Earl when I was moving here. And he said, now tell Phil that there's a a system in Sweden. And if you go with it, you'll be fine. But if you go against it, they'll kill you like a dog in the street. And Earl started to laugh. And Glenn goes, no, no, like a dog in the street. That's just how it is, you know. And I went, fucking hell, okay, you know. So I actually sort of took that on board. And it is very much that way, Una. It is extremely organized. It takes a long time to get things done here. 
Irish companies get very frustrated when they're trying to sell services in here, you know, or, you know, if you arrive over and you want to set yourself up as a freelance journalist, it takes time. Everything takes time because it's so organized. So if we go back to the start of February, like you were saying there, in the beginning, I think this was sort of mirrored in a lot of European countries because Wuhan was so far away. We had no sort of concept of, of you know, what was going on there. You know, Donald Trump went out to call this the Chinese virus. And you tend to see things sort of like the book Candide, where you want to see things in the, in the most positive possible light and you go, oh, so that'll never happen here, right? The point where Swedes started to take this seriously was when it turned up in northern Italy, right? Because that's a lot closer to home. And the, the bond there would be that at that time of the year in February, wealthier Swedes would be heading down towards the Alps and part of the Alps in northern Italy to go skiing, right? It's actually called the sports holiday in the school calendar. So everybody either goes off, you know, two or three hours north of Stockholm, they find a slope somewhere, they spend a week skiing up and down it and it's not you know it's not usually a very posh thing but going to the Alps is and that really focused the mind of you know the the, so the, the rich and famous or the wealthy and the powerful here in Sweden they're going okay if this is where we go in Italy well then this is something that we have to be taken seriously that has to be taken seriously so it's just looking back over my notes there and there was a briefing held uh, at a building in the centre town here where they had people from the European Centre for D- Disease Control up here and I went to like, film that for a news agency and even then I was standing there thinking go, you know it kind of it was one of those stories as a journalist certainly that had crept up on me you know so I t- tend not to pay attention to things until such time as they sort of explode in my face and I have to learn about them quickly and go cover them you know so I was kind of aware that this was going on but you know I always wait for these things to come to me you know and mm. then I started to read about it and I started to ask the experts where we were about these things and then you went hang on a second right because at that stage there was only 45 cases in all of europe it seems so quaint now and that's not to be flippant about you know the people who've lost their lives in the meantime but it just seemed like such a small tiny thing and the scientist who was there from the european center for disease control she was saying it is contained now but she was very very open with the fact that this could spread and it could spread very very quickly and countries and and authorities need to have a game plan here they can't just start making this up as they go along but i think the difference was that the swedes always had a game plan they had people in in the position of power like i was saying we knew who was responsible for things right away and the person who was responsible here was the state epidemiologist Anders Tegnell who has pretty much become the 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 Elvis Presley of, of that business over here and what was that game plan and was it laid out from the get go uh, yes well, uh, yes and no is the way I'd put it right they are never going to tell you everything that you need to know in a situation like this because you know if you start to put too much information out there in terms of on a federal level crisis communications has to be very very simple now at the time we're talking here it's a couple of days after Boris Johnson went on the television and made a complete dog's dinner of a of a, a, a broadcast of the nation here's what you can do here's what you can't do here's what you could maybe do you know and it was just weird because at the end of it everybody was going well what can we do you know, and now there's all these sort of memes on Twitter, you know, whether you can meet your mother to play golf, but not your father to play tennis, right? So the Swedes went the opposite and they came out straight away and they went, wash your hands. If you're sick, stay at home. Don't make unnecessary journeys. If you can work from home, work from home. And they were the things, and they are still the things that they are hammering every single day. They're telling people, wash your hands, stay at home, wash your hands, stay at home, wash your hands, stay at home if you can. And they didn't allow any sort of, you know, they wouldn't even get into public discussions about issues like herd immunity or anything else like that. They just kept going back to these mantras that they were repeating. And the other side of the cultural coin, if you like, is that 
when things when the shit hits the fan in Sweden, people do what they're told. Not everybody, but the vast majority of people will do what they're told. So if you tell them to wash their hands and you tell them to stay at home, well, then that's what they're going to do. So they rode in behind Tegnell. They rolled in behind the public health authority here. And it almost became a thing where, you know, at one stage early in the pandemic, I was sort of looking at the strategy and I said publicly in English. Now, I speak Swedish fluently, but I said publicly in English after some briefings, I was going, OK, this is before that it got into the old folks' homes and that. And I was saying that I don't know how, how great this strategy is. I don't know how watertight this could possibly be. And I had Swedes attacking me straight away to the point where I had to mute people on Twitter, but gone, we're, you know, we're trying to have a discussion here. And they were having no dissent whatsoever. They go, you're spreading misinformation and dissent and you shouldn't be doing that. And we need to present a united front and not get off the top. I was like, hang on a second here, people. You know, you need to be able to talk about these things. But there was very, very little of that kind of dissent that was, you know, that was allowed at all. You know, and it got so far that like you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching a guy get a tattoo of Tegnell's face on his arm. You know, and it was just, you know, for people who are normally so conservative and so laid back to do something like this. But rather than be this the exception, that, that actually makes perfect sense to me. That's how much people trust that guy, that they would make him in permanent ink. You know, they would have his image on their arm forever because of the job that he's doing. You know, so in the beginning, certainly uh, their communication was very good. It was very strong. Now, you know, I think, you know, they said to me, Tegnell, I've interviewed many times. He has a press conference every day at two o'clock and you can go along there. Uh, there's a certain amount of places in the room. You're supposed to keep your distance from other journalists. So at eight o'clock in the morning, uh, you write an email to them. You go onto their little list and you say, yes, I'd like a place today. And you tell them you're bringing your video camera. And then when you get there, they say, who do you want to interview? Because there's some other um, authority figures would be there as well. And every time for me, it's Tegnell and it's in English. And they go, okay. And you wait your turn and you get to talk to him every day. So he's very present. You know, So the day mm. after Donald Trump said that Swedish people were suffering greatly, I was able to put that to him both in the open form of the press conference and in a one-to-one interview directly afterwards. So they're very, very accessible. But again, he doesn't put out there a shred of information more than what is necessary to keep the Swedish people doing what he believes that uh, he needs them to do. Right. At the start, kind of, well, kind of as the, as the you know, pandemic, um, what would you call a plan or approach uh, was, was kind of escalating in Ireland and growing in, in seriousness, the I think a lot of people in Ireland will remember the speech that Leo Varadkar made in Washington, um, which was extraordinary. It was very, you know, this is super serious stuff. It was quite dour. And then um, the the speech on St. Patrick's Day as well. You know, um, people were scared. Uh, there was a, 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 a kind of a sense of fear that we were kind of staring down the barrel of a gun and just kind of waiting and hoping and doing everything that we could to, you know, this mantra, flatten the curve, flatten the curve. I want to know what the feeling was um, in Sweden with regards to that. Like, were there the same fears of this could potentially steamroll over us? Our hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. You see the army trucks coming out of places in Bergamo and all that kind of stuff. Like, was the same fear there or was it more of like we do things really well we're going to get on top of this we'll lean into the bureaucracy and the systems that we have that will organize our way out of this 
Yeah, I, I think one of the things that the Swedes have here is an enormous sense of trust in the authorities. So when somebody comes out, and the, the, the difference here is that Leo Varadkar was the one making those speeches for the Irish people, but Tegnell, the expert, the state epidemiologist who worked in the Ebola outbreak in the mid-90s in Africa, and who was an extremely well-experienced and educated man, he was the one talking to the Swedish people. So he had the kind of the pondus and the gravitas that Swedish people could listen to. And they would say, we are in good hands here this man knows what he's doing and if we just do what he says we should do well then we'll be okay right so there was fear obviously and you know this is not you know this country hasn't been untouched by COVID-19 like you know in fact the opposite is true it has suffered greatly from it but that level of fear that I felt and that I still feel in talking to many Irish people at the moment hasn't been apparent there has been a much much calmer reaction so the panic buying I think there was probably one night I went to the supermarket and there probably wasn't a whole lot of toilet roll left but for the most part uh, you know the shelves of the supermarkets haven't been emptied Uh, people have continued to go to the doctors for you know and to, to get medical treatment for things other than COVID-19 because again they have been very very clear and when they see a fall off in you know heart patients or cancer patients turning up for their their medical care well then they would look at people you have to keep coming here you need this treatment you don't have to be afraid you know and they split things up and they had separate entrances for people with COVID symptoms and for COVID patients and for other patients who might be arriving for different things and that happened very very quickly so I think the benefit though that was um, that the Swedes had that you know maybe not a whole lot of countries had was they have seen this before they model for this all the time. So there's mathematical models there that say, you know, that in science it's called if this, then that. So you put in all your numbers and it will tell you the outcome of what you do and how much you close down society and what's going to happen there. And this is what Technel does all the time. So, you know, this is actually out of his career over the last 30 odd years or, or more, this is actually, you know, the outlier where he's actually in the media the whole time because most of the time what he does is he sits pumping data into Excel arcs about small little things that happen around the world and seeing what he can learn from those outcomes. But he has taken that 30 years of experience and they came up with a plan for Sweden which differed greatly has to be said but it was based on the same data that everybody else had first coming out of Wuhan secondly coming out of South Korea then coming out of Italy and other countries but that was you know when, when they took all that data in they took exactly the same data as everybody else because every shred of data has been shared around the world but they arrived at very very different conclusions from Ireland from the UK from the US from China and from Italy Right so here we get to the why and how Um, And the reason that uh, Sweden has been so much in the spotlight with regards to its perceived deviations from the tactics of other countries to control, resist, uh, flatten and alleviate the pandemic. What did Sweden do that was different and why? I think we need to start with the why before we go into the what, right? So Tegnell is a product of a man called Johan Yaseke. Johan Yaseke was the state epidemiologist before Tegnell. And anybody who's been watching Newsnight and Channel 4 and the Reuters feed and that will have seen Yaseke turn up every now and again. He's now, uh, he's an old man, but he still works as an an advisor and he still turns up in various different media interviews. And I interviewed him very, very early on. And if you think that the Swedish thing is sort of forthright at the moment, you want to talk to Yaseke. Because I went down to meet him at the Public Health Authority. He was down there consulting people and I went out to interview him and he came out straight away saying you know look at what we're doing here is, is based on science it's based on fact it's not based on fear we're not closing down society for the sake of it everything we're doing is evidence-based and the first thing that he did or the first thing that he advised Tegnell not to do was not to close down the schools so in Ireland and Italy etc etc we would have closed down the schools because we thought okay we can't have children you know children interact naturally because they play every day with other children they play football and they play chasing they play tag 
they play all these things. And you would think that, you know, well, there's a great opportunity there for a disease to spread. But Yaseke was 100% convinced, Una. He said there is absolutely no chance that an asymptomatic child can spread a droplet-borne virus. And that was just his thing. He's got, no, I refuse to believe anything else until you can put it in front of me that this can actually happen. You can put that evidence in front of me, then I am not going to close the schools. And the second reason for that is not just the asymptomatic kids in his world cannot spread the virus. He said, if you close the schools now, I'm going to lose doctors and nurses and ambulance drivers and taxi drivers and everybody else that I need on the front line to fight this. So if I lose 15, 20% of them and then 15, 20% more of them get sick or even more in some cases, well, then what? I got left. So it was very much a sort of an evidence-based approach. Now, that was put through a sort of a filter of of Tegnell, who's a bit more diplomatic than what Yuseki would be. Yuseki just goes in, studs up, sliding tackles all over the place. Uh, but Tegnell put that in a sort of a much nicer way and people were able to accept it. And they were able to accept the logic that this being a droplet-borne virus, we talk about aerosolization is, you know, how this gets out. And if you're talking to somebody, you're at a certain risk. But if you sit in front of me and sing at me, you know, I'm at a greater risk if you have this this virus, you know. So we're getting mm. into all these sort of debates that we never thought that we'd had. But that was the basis of what Yuseki wanted to get out there and in turn what Tegnell wanted to get out there. So the why has always been very important. People have made uh, the idea that, you know, Sweden wanted to keep the economy open. You know, they wanted they didn't want the economy to tank as badly as other economies are doing. And that was never part of the why. That was a byproduct of the why. The other byproduct of the why and that gets talked about a lot here is herd immunity. Okay. So they talked a lot about herd immunity, how Sweden chose herd immunity. And indeed, I said it myself that effectively what they've done is chosen herd immunity without ever saying it. Right. But again, herd immunity is not, that was never the goal. That was never, you know, what they wanted to get to with this strategy. That is a byproduct of it. What Tegnell wanted to do was he wanted to create a sustainable mitigation strategy. And in what he means by that is a set of measures that the Swedish people could live with for a year or more. Now, if you lock down people straight away, and we've seen it in other countries as well, where now we have, you know, armed protesters in the United States of America going down to city halls and Senate buildings and, and you know, going down there demanding that things are reopened. We see people straying away from their own homes. And indeed, you know, we're increasing the distance that they can move from their own homes in Ireland. But Technel said to me on many occasions that, look, you know, if I tell people, if I tell everybody in this country to stay at home, eventually they're just going to go out. Right. So if I tell them they can't do things, eventually they're just going to get bored of it. But if I can sell them this idea that, you know, if we can do this for now and that it's not going to be that difficult on you, well, then, you know, people will be prepared to live with that for a longer time. So a good example of that now is that the public transport system here is a great subway system and bus system and ferry system here in the Swedish capital of Stockholm, where I'm talking to you from. But they told people, don't use it unless you have to. So unless your journey is absolutely essential, please do not use public transport. Leave it for essential workers to use it. And people are doing it. Now, in certain instances, like, you know, we have a Gaelic football club here. We tried to go back training last Sunday. And so many of the Swedes in the club didn't want to train because they've been told not to use public transport. And they said, you know, the training ground's too far away, so we'll skip it. And we'll come back when they change the recommendations that are made to us. So this is what you're kind of dealing with. So this is very, very sustainable. They'll go out and they'll run in their local park and they'll take their own eels football and do their thing. But they will obey the recommendations for as long as they can. And that's what Tegnell wants. He does not want a total lockdown of society. He doesn't want everybody sitting staring at the four walls because he just does not believe that that's a sustainable way to go about it. Quick question before I go on to my next question. But why was he so convinced that an asymptomatic child couldn't spread COVID-19? 
again, the, the, the basic science behind that is the fact that this is a droplet-borne virus, right? So it's droplets. It's mostly saliva that spreads that. Now, it can live on um, on surfaces, on metal, on plastic, and that for a long time, but it actually comes from the lungs in droplet form. So when you exhale, there's a certain amount of, I don't know if it's thousands or parts per million of droplets that you exhale, right? So if you shout at somebody, that increases. If you sing, that increases. So uh, if you're in an enclosed space, obviously those droplets will remain in the atmosphere for longer. When you exhale, most most of the droplets drop straight to the floor immediately. So, you know, whatever you do, don't go licking the floorboards in the Irish Times if you're visiting them in the near future. Not that you'd ever do that, I hope. But <laughs> that was the, his thing was that it has to be, you have to somehow come into contact with these droplets or things that have been in contact with these droplets. So a child who doesn't have any symptoms, and by symptoms he means coughing, sneezing, runny nose, right? A child who doesn't have symptoms, has symptoms by default doesn't have these droplets. That's the way he was looking at it. So if they're not coughing, they're not spreading droplets. If they're not sneezing, they're not spreading droplets. And he would also say that the doses or the levels that would be in a child's body would also be so small as to make their exhalation uh, not a problem for adults. So that's the, the so the information that he was working off. And again, COVID-19 is a new iteration of an old virus, right? These are SARS-based viruses or COVID viruses have actually been around for a long time. So even though we're not quite au fait just yet with you know the, the complete makeup of it and how it works and how it spreads and how virulent it actually is there's actually a lot of indicators because of the family of viruses it comes from that Yaseke and Tegnell were able to draw these conclusions from now again we you know we're looking at science for answers what all science does at the moment and especially in epidemiology is give us a better way of asking questions and Yaseke is completely open to the fact that he got this wrong he's completely open to the fact that if somebody can present science to him that says I'm sorry uh, asymptomatic children and asymptomatic adults, as has been s- subsequently shown, can actually spread this virus, then he'll review it. But that doesn't mean that they're going to change their mind. And that doesn't mean either that they're going to apologize because they would say that they're making the best decisions based on the information available to them. Mm. Um, so it seems to me then that while there has been a narrative about um, this approach being the result of a unique Swedish stoicism or something like that. There's there it there seems to be a large degree of behavioral science at work. Yeah, I definitely think there is. I definitely think there's a, you know, the cultural constructs and the cultural frameworks within which one works in this country. Again, go back to Glenn Christensen. If you go against this system, they'll kill you like a dog in the street, you know. There literally is a system for everything, right? So the moment you're born in this country, you're assigned a personal number. And that is your date of birth and four digits tacked on the end that is unique to you. And that follows you around for your entire life. You cannot get a bank account without it. You cannot get social welfare payments without it. You cannot register for school without it. You literally can't, you can't get cable TV you can't get internet you can't get a cell phone you cannot do anything without this that will just give you some indication of the level of structure and order that that actually exists in this society and people work within that all these sort of social codexes people understand them innately and you know the problems that people like me who immigrate into this country have is learning these extremely complex social codes and trying to operate within them now certain ones of them you'll learn by osmosis but then there are certain things that are different our natural Irish inclination to question basically every in authority because we would never see them as being trustworthy is the antithesis of what would happen here. So there is that, you know, there's a huge amount of sort of cultural programming that goes into making sure that this that this can happen in the way that they would want to happen. Another thing I think though that's very valuable or, you know, definitely worth pointing out is at the beginning we talked and you mentioned it there, flatten the curve, flatten the curve. That became the mantra at the very beginning. But one of the things that, you know, one of the axes of the curve, if you like, is over time. 
So I think what the Swedes are saying, again, they're not saying it outwardly, but you know, you can sort of tease it out from what Tegnell says to me and other reporters, right? They are not thinking about the death count in April or the death count in May. They're thinking about, you know, what's the death count going to be in May 2021? What's the infection rate going to be there? And the other slice of data that has been very, very uh, uh, important to them as they went along in this mitigation strategy has been ICU capacity. So they have been looking very, very intensely at ICU capacity. Do we have the beds to deal with this if it gets worse? And they actually built a field hospital out in the south side of the city uh, at this huge uh, conference centre in the car park of that. They built a field hospital. And as far as I know, it hasn't been used yet. I would have heard, you know, but up to about two weeks ago, not a single bed had been filled. And that's the kind of thing that they do so well. You know, they create these things. They hope never to have to use them, but they have the planning there. And I remember actually, I was over in uh, the Karolinska Hospital, which is, it's on two different campuses, but I was over in the one on the south side of town in Huddinge. And they had, you know, serendipity, serendipity was all over the place here. They'd built a new uh, suite of operating theatres, 23 operating theatres, and they were just about to open them in April. And it would hang on a second as a pandemic, scratch that, we're going to open ICU units instead. And they went off to the national stores of emergency equipment and they found, you know, the greatest hipster uh, ventilators I've ever seen, right? These 80s ventilators with dials, you know, they were entirely mechanical, in no way digital whatsoever, but they could still keep a person alive by breathing for them. And I was standing there talking to the head of the ICU, dead, a doctor called David, and he was talking to me about this. And I was saying, when is this going to be used? He said, well, the modeling we've done means that when you leave here, we're going to clean this place and in two hours, there's going to be a patient lying in this bed we're standing beside. And that was how accurate they could be in terms of their their uh, their capacity and their ability to deal with this crisis and it was fascinating to see and indeed when i went back there a week later they were after you know they were still sort of ticking away there up towards i think he had 190 beds uh, under his command and they were ticking up towards that 190 but they still had more beds that they were bringing online because they had the spare capacity there so an incredible level of organization and when you have that then that then it's very easy to build the societal trust that's necessary to get people to do the small things such as washing their hands and staying at home if they have symptoms that is actually the the grunt work if you like of the mitigation strategy when we see um let's say especially around like let's say around a month ago um when people are seeing images from sweden of like people in restaurants and walking down you know shopping streets and i know you were shooting some stuff for channel 4 news and, and these images coming back of you know life quote unquote as normal while meanwhile in other european countries including ireland people had kind of um, I think just kind of developed new uh, lenses for how to move around in society. Like all of a sudden other people were um, radioactive or something. Yeah. I remember like looking at those things going, Jesus Christ, you know, what are they doing? What are they doing? How did daily life change? Um, what were the inconveniences? What were people allowed to do and not do? And, and how is it now? Well, I think over time, I sort of realized that I'd be out and about trying to film. So, you know, somebody would say to you, can you go and film in a restaurant and and that, and try to film, see if there's people close together and that. And that did happen. And five pubs actually were shut one Saturday night here because the authorities got tired of people flouting the rules and they went in, they just shut them down completely, right? But the vast majority of pubs and restaurants are suffering very, very badly. You know? So uh, in the old town here in Stockholm, Gamla Stan, as it's called in Swedish, there's a Galway man called Martin Hessian has a pub called Veerstrums. It's been on the site since about the 19th century as far as I know and Martin's business would mostly be people who work in the offices and the government buildings around that part of town and tourists 
and there is nobody there. So his pub is open maybe five hours a day with just him behind the bar. He's had to let his seven staff go. So when we go out there, you know, the camera never lies, but it doesn't exactly tell you the whole story either. You know, so I'd be going filming cafes and that kind of thing. And you might see two people sitting outside or you might see, you know, people around there at lunchtime. So there was never a lockdown here in the same sense. You were never told that you're not allowed to go out, but you were told, you know, this sort of, um, it was almost a guilt trip, you know, look, don't do things unnecessarily. So, you know, people wouldn't go out, they wouldn't go shopping, they wouldn't go to clothes stores, they'd go to electronic stores because they needed to get a webcam for Zoom, for work or whatever. But it really did fall off a cliff. So where I'm talking to you now, I live in the suburb of Shista, which is in the north, uh, on the north side of Stockholm. Many Irish people would know it because plenty of Ericsson employees have worked here over the last 20, 25 years. The Ericsson headquarters is here. And right there, there's a huge shopping centre that's there. There's an 11 screen cinema and there's a food court that's full from morning till night right and i got back from portugal actually just as the pandemic was starting and it was empty and you literally would never see this you know at any point of the year like you know it's open 364 days a year and you would never see it as empty and it has been that way the whole time you know so there has been a sense of normality there has been this thing that people are allowed to go out and do things but you know the pedestrian traffic is down to about 20 percent of what it normally would be Uh, martin hessian the man who owns that pub in the old town was telling me that his takings are probably down 70 75 percent so even when people do go out so it would be a very select few restaurants and bars and nightclubs because it's impossible to do it you know even the fast food restaurants here which never closed they taped off tables so nobody could sit down beside you if you were having your lunch there and that just made things really really difficult i passed through yeah go ahead how how um how has sweden been on testing that's been a huge issue i suppose in ireland in terms of these initial like desired capacity of like fifteen thousand you know a day a hundred thousand a week all this kind of stuff we've never seemed to have managed to get there which seems to be putting the pressure on on people to then maintain lockdown because of the shortcomings in that arena. How has Sweden done that? Um, it, it hasn't. Okay. So basically in the beginning, there was everybody faced, I don't know if you remember about five, six weeks ago, everybody had this thing of they couldn't get tests or they couldn't yeah. get, you know, trustworthy tests at work, right? But what is a test, right? A, a test for COVID-19 is only a snapshot of a point in time right? And we've all heard of people who've tested and tested and tested, and it was only on the second or third or fourth test they were actually proved to test positive, right? So when you're testing, there's a false sense of security that comes into that, that you go, oh, you know, well, I tested and I don't have it. And then two or three or four days later, it turns out that you do have it, right? So I talked to a family, the Hugemax, who were among the first to be uh, diagnosed with the virus here in Sweden, and they were down in Italy skiing, and they didn't know that this was going on, and they came back, and the father started to feel unwell, and the whole family was tested, and it was only himself and his, I think it was himself his wife that turned out to be sick but the kids didn't turn out to be sick but eventually they tested positive as well right so it's just it's one of those things that a test will tell you that Una Mulally is fine at the moment but that's not going to say that you're going to be fine tomorrow or the day after or the day after so the Swedes didn't really concentrate on testing the general public they didn't even in certain instances you know if you like a lot of the medical consultations here you'd call your local health service here you know before they even give you an appointment and this goes this is long before COVID-19 you would call and say look I'm feeling this way and they say okay come down we'll give an appointment at 10 a.m. or whatever and you might get an antibiotic or they say look at you know just stay at home you'll be okay and with COVID-19 a friend of mine from uh, from the north of Ireland he called them up and they went yeah from what you've described to me you've pretty much got COVID-19 but seeing as there's no medicine you just stay where you are and unless it gets more serious you know give us a call back so 
this guy wasn't tested. Now, I don't like because they're only uh, the statistics that are given out in Sweden every day. Uh, the people that they say who've had COVID 19, they only include laboratory confirmed tests. So, my friend from the north of Ireland is not included in that. So, this is the thing that, like, you know, testing could tell you a whole lot more. But the Swedes that I've spoken to, the scientists and indeed people at the public health authority, would say, What use is that information to us? Because we only know, you know, that a person didn't test positive on that day. So, they have kind of limited uh, most of their testing to frontline healthcare workers. Because they, that would be the most important thing is a to look after them, but b to also ensure that they're not in a situation where they're sort of spreading it throughout the hospitals by themselves. So there hasn't been the kind of widespread testing, the tracking and tracing I've barely heard about here. You know, in the beginning there was a little bit of tracking and tracing, like with the Hugemack family, they tried to test them out. But once it got to a certain uh, critical mass, then that kind of went out of the window, and people were expected to, to take care of these things by themselves. So if somebody in your household tested positive, well then the whole family was expected to self isolate for. 14 days, which again, most, but not all, uh, would have done. Mm. I think as well with regards to case numbers has always been a bit of a misnomer because it's like, oh, this country has yay many cases. It's like, well, actually, that country has uh, a number of people who've tested positive who have been tested. So it's really like small, small section of of the broader picture, um, making it hard to really see how things are going. Apart from the very, very obvious and grim and base data of how many people have died. Um, This is a, I mean, there's been lots of kind of grotesque um, data journalism done around, you know, uh, um, you know, like, and, 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 you know, people, uh, you know, death isn't data and, you know, people's misery isn't data and all that kind of stuff. But nevertheless, we see these, um, you know, almost uh, silly string type graphs in the FT and all that kind of stuff, uh, multicolored uh, things of of, of uh, the UK and the US escalating beyond belief and all that kind of stuff. But that said, it does give an indication um, of hospitals and ICU units being overwhelmed, um, people not getting the right treatment, uh, certain clusters of, of, in certain areas, which we'll get into in a second. But how many people have died and how does that compare to other countries who did much more um, stringent lockdown measures and so on? Well, as I'm talking to you at the moment, right, the latest statistics that came out today, there are 3,313 people in Sweden have died, 1,455 women and 1,858 men. Right now, one of the, as you were saying, it is absolutely treacherous to compare any kind of statistics across borders, right? But we're going to do it anyway with the asterisk on this that this is a very blunt instrument. The only thing that I've been looking at in terms of these things, and again, even with deaths, right? Deaths aren't always counted in the same way. So yeah. basically, you know, it's people who've had a positive test for COVID nineteen who are included in this, regardless of the actual cause of death. Right. So you could have had COVID-19 and you could have died of a heart attack, but you are listed among the 3,313 in Sweden as the statistics are collected at the moment. Right. So even at that, there's still, you know, there's still room for maneuvering these things. And that's why I describe this as a very blunt instrument. But if we look at it in terms of population, Sweden has about 10.2 million people in Sweden. Right. 3,313 people dead. Uh, Denmark has just under 6 million, 5.8 million, 527 dead. Right, uh, Finland lower again, five point five million people, two hundred seventy-one dead, and then you have Norway with five point three million people, two hundred twenty-four dead. Right, that will tell you that Norway has you know, Sweden is over ten times the number of deaths that Norway has. Right, we're still talking about wealthy countries. There are no huge differences, you know, other than the way that they sort of treated this uh, from the very beginning. So. 
I've asked Tegnell about this on many, many occasions. And a lot of what I've been told, every time I ask these questions about deaths, who has died and how they died, I get told it's too early to tell, it's too early to tell, it's too early to tell, right? What we can say is that the vast, vast majority, probably 90% of those who've died in Sweden are over the age of 60 years of age, right? And again, the higher up you go, you know, the, the, the biggest majority are those between 80 and 89. They would account for, and I can't remember the exact percentage, and I can't see it here on the screen in front of me, but you're probably talking about around about a third to 40% of the deaths have been people aged between 80 and 89. So Tegnell has spoken to the Daily Show last week. I think it, uh, it's a Trevor Noah presents that uh, show mm. in, the, in the US. And he said that he was surprised by the death toll. And I get that, right? Because the mitigation strategy in Sweden, he told me long ago, was two things. It was wash your hands, stay at home if you have symptoms, try to stay away from other people. That was the one pillar. And the second pillar was in keeping this out of retirement homes. And in there is absolutely no other way to put it, but that has been a catastrophic failure in Sweden to keep things out of all they have just completely failed to do that in stockholm and that is the reason or most of the reason that the death toll is so so high now again the reasons for this this is one of the things that i want to know before anything else there's a couple of things i want to know and this is one of them I was going, how could you possibly allow a disease that is merciless when it comes to dealing with old people, people with high blood pressure, people with underlying conditions, how can you, how could this be allowed to happen? I'm not going to say how can you let this happen, but how can this be allowed to happen in one of the world's richest democracies, one of the best prepared countries with, you know, a fantastic health service across the board? How can this happen? And so far, they haven't been able to answer that question. And it's not going to be flattering when they do. It's going to have a lot to do with the fact that, you know, under two periods of a centre-right government here, a lot of elderly care was privatised. So, for instance, in the 80s, if you decided as a pensioner to stay at home, you would have contact with, on average, four carers a week in the 1980s, right? Uh, If you uh, fast forward to this point in time in 2010, 20, when we're speaking, that's up to just over 12 on average. Now, the risk that that brings and the fact that these people are working for minimum wage that they can't afford to call in sick especially if they're casual workers, right? So a casual worker will still get paid if they call in sick, but that doesn't mean that they're going to get scheduled for a shift next week or the week after, right? And these are the things that keep people coming back to work when, in fact, they should stay at home. Now, I'm bringing this up as a point of information. I'm not, I haven't not—I have been able to establish that this is actually the case yet, but everybody I've spoken to has been saying that this is definitely something that is going to have to be looked at. The fact that people in uh, precarious employment situations find themselves working both in healthcare, but very very much so in elderly care. They may not have a great grasp of the language. They may not, you know, they may not, they may have a completely different work ethic. They may think, oh, you know, well, it's only a bit of a sniffle. I'm going to work anyway. Indeed, I'd probably do the same myself just because that's the way I'm brought up. So these things have to be, you know, they really, really have to be looked at because this has been an absolute catastrophe. That's one entire pillar of the two that were the Swedish mitigation strategy that has failed and failed utterly. Well, you know, Philip, um, like it's been the same in Ireland as well. You know, that this the um the 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 majority um of of deaths from COVID nineteen that we know of in Ireland have occurred in uh nursing homes, congregated care settings. There didn't seem even though we knew and especially with regards to what people were looking at happening in Washington State with with how um the kind of clusters manifested in uh, for want of a better word, old folks' homes, nursing homes, there, this was the big warning st- sign of like, everyone get your shit in order when it comes to nursing homes and congregated care settings and long-term uh, healthcare settings and all 
all of that. And it is very obvious in Ireland. And you can, you know, when you're reading uh, Simon Carswell or um, Jack Power in the Irish Times, who are doing fantastic reporting on this, that that was very, very, very lacking. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of correlations here. Um, even let's say, you know, Sweden's population is there, there about double Ireland's and their, the oh, Jesus, here I am, death, death and data, the death toll or, or, or whatever you call it is um, over double, but not five or 10 times of Ireland. Um, yet the uh, management of it, um, and now maybe a lot of that is cultural and perhaps you wouldn't have been able to do a similar thing here in Ireland because we embrace fear and um you know, an anti-authoritarian streak, yet we also um, are quite submissive in a, in a way, I think, collectively sometimes. But like there's so many correlations here, yet the approaches are so different. So now I'm going to get into the ultimate, you know, the 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 basic bitch uh, journalism question that a lot of people are asking when it comes down to it. Is Sweden right? And I, I would imagine we will uh, not know that until late next year, basically. Yeah, so that's exactly what I was going to say. I'm going to give you Tegnell's answer that he keeps giving me is that it's too early to tell, right? If you ask me that question in a year's time, we're going to be in a much better place uh, to, to discuss that. I think that when you look at it over time, I think that Sweden is still going to be slightly on the higher side when you compare, right? But, you know, we're taking a lot of things for granted in some of the, sort of the calculations that we're making. We're going around thinking, you know, Donald Trump is telling us we're going to have a, a, a vaccine by September. And, you know, there's all this magical thinking and even in Stockholm, this has happened as well. They're talking today about, you know, well, when are we going to achieve herd immunity in the city of Stockholm, right? There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that possessing the antibodies for COVID-19 actually protects you from reinfection. And mm. this was said by the World, the World Health Organization, I think it was three weeks ago on Friday, that they yeah. said the very same thing. And, you know, I, I've been in, in touch with scientists from the very beginning because, you know, you want to be ahead of the story. And the first thing I wanted to do was find out who's working with antibodies. And there are scientists, Irish and uh, Swedish, that I've been speaking to, and they said, look, we're working on this. You know, they did a huge test at Dan Reed Hospital here in Sweden. And they found the antibodies, right? But what they haven't found is whether the antibodies are offering any um, protection to reinfection or whether it's just dumb luck. And this is the, the problem that we have is that, you know, this is so early. This is so much in its infancy at the moment. You know, we are looking for answers that we cannot possibly know because, you know, they, these things will only be proved over time. You know, my sort of gut feeling about the whole thing is that Sweden will end up slightly higher than, say, Norway or Denmark, because at the moment, Norway, Denmark and Finland are doing a brilliant job of keeping it out of their care homes. If this does get into a care home, catastrophic, right? Those figures are going to sort of run away. And Denmark, of course, is opening up society. There have been spikes in certain places in Germany as they start to open up society. I saw that, you know, those people protesting in Georgia and the United States, 75 of whom subsequently caught COVID-19. So, you know, I do think that, you know, the, the second spike, if you look back over pandemics in, generally, in general, there's usually uh, first quite a high spike and then there's a second spike when society begins to open up again. And, you know, again, I do think that other nations are going to catch up. So, you know, if we were to look at that blunt instrument of deaths per million of population, I do think that we're all pretty much going to wind up within the same curve-ish, right? Ireland and Sweden are there at the moment. They're pretty much, you know, Ireland has sort of, or Sweden has twice the population, slightly more than twice the number of deaths. But over time, that may very well iron out. And that is why it is so important that this is not allowed to be one of those stories that just ebbs away. We need to understand the how, but most of all, the why this happened. And, you know, as I'm speaking to you now, Una, 
I'm in the region that for Stockholm, I'm not exactly sure what it, how it is today, but the region I live in was one of the hardest hit. Uh, the suburb I live in, in Stockholm was one of the absolute hardest hit in terms of deaths in the early part of this pandemic and still is, right? Because I live in, uh, there'd be quite a lot of immigrants, you know, Irish, Somali, uh, Eritrean immigrants who live where I live. And they were hit very, very hard and very, very quickly, right? And I have, I have spent weeks trying to find out why this is. And the initial thing that I was told by the authorities here was, it's A, it's cultural. So you get people living two or three generations under one roof, off with elderly relatives, and that's how they catch it. They have people out on the streets and that. And B, it was the language thing, you know, that maybe we didn't get out information um, in the right languages in time, right? And I actually bought that. I accepted that. And then I ended up scratching my head going, hang on a fucking second here, right? The people who, my neighbours are all taxi drivers and bus drivers, right? These are the people, and this will be seen, this has been replicated. We saw another transport worker who died in London today who'd been spat at by a young man and eventually got the virus herself. You know, these are the people who collected the people coming from the Alps who were skiing in Northern Italy and they were driving the taxis and that's where they were picking this up. They were driving the buses before we knew that this was going to be a problem. Five bus drivers from one depot have passed away here on the south side of town again. And, you know, like I'm trying to get to the bottom of why this is happening, but at the moment, I cannot get access to that information because of the fact that the resources I need to talk to me are being deployed elsewhere. So the people I would need to sit down with to work out this information have their plates full with other things. But I am absolutely not going to get this go because let this go because, you know, why should my neighbours and the people who live in my part of the city get, you know, singled out for this kind of treatment? Why should they have to give their lives? And and then, you know, why, why should this just be completely ignored then? Because, you know, it didn't affect the rich people that they were driving home. That's one of those things that I absolutely point black refused to get let go until such times I get answers for it. Mm. Of course, one of the things that Sweden has gifted um, the world is uh, five million hot takes about um, what what they've done and why other countries aren't doing what Sweden did and their approach, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, you can't transplant an entire kind of culture, behaviour, um, the, the officials, you know, the bureaucracy, all that kind of stuff to other jurisdictions. But it has this idea, this narrative, which is inaccurate and very, very broad brush strokes, that Sweden did a certain thing that they, um, you know, people still maintain their certain freedoms, day to day freedoms, the schools, you know, still open, all that kind of stuff. Um, compared to what is viewed as like, you know, the big government, big state interventions to shut things down and um, lock people down and all that kind of stuff. And and so you get this kind of genesis of, um, you know, uh, very quite kind of right wing um, cohort of people cosplaying as libertarians let's say <laughs> saying that you know uh this is an infringement on civil liberties these lockdowns we need to break like break free them and you know we're under control and all that kind of stuff and sweden has given ammunition for want of a better uh, term to those kind of um you know the cohort the cohort of people whether you're on the extreme end walking around uh you know an american uh city with a fucking bazooka or you know people just like pontificating uh, on twitter or whatever what do you think about that do you think that holds any water 
Um, Sweden is one of these things that like it, it, it's just it has broken my heart over 20 years here Una, because people either deliberately or otherwise they just misunderstand this society and so many things about it right it is so incredibly complex and layered if we rewind to 2015 when the refugee crisis happened uh, in, in Europe and 163,000 people came to Sweden most of them from Afghanistan but also from Iraq uh, from Syria and you know what happened there was like I mean it was just open season for hot takes and the ignorance that was coming out and people telling you that oh Swedes are this and Swedes are that and Swedes are the other and I'm still getting it in this as well there's just this there's this idea people have this perception of Sweden and I think part of it is to do with you know p- people of my age would perceive Sweden as being Olaf Palme's people's home right this is the man who stood up the Americans the Vietnam War they built the welfare state in the post-war period they were neutral in the war and they had all their sort of infrastructure left there and the timber that Europe needed to rebuild they built this great welfare state and it, yeah all of that is true or it was was true in 1983 you know it's just it's so completely different now um society in itself here is changing so much and so often that what was true in 2015 isn't true in 2020 anymore either and keeping in front of that tsunami of change that's happening in any country is very very difficult the idea that somehow Sweden is a libertarian paradise whereby people are allowed to, they were given the sense of responsibility and, you know, just told to get on with it, right? The Swedish government very quietly passed laws that would enable it to do an awful lot of very, very strict things if people didn't do as they were told. They were told. As it happens, they did, right? But the government had passed the laws, giving themselves, power, uh, giving themselves the power to close down the things that they saw they needed to close down. The public health authority here is still saying there's no soccer matches, no top flight soccer matches at all here. It was supposed to get underway on June 14th and they haven't decided whether that's still going to happen or not. As I said, five bars closed down on the spot because they weren't uh, obeying the recommendations that, are, or the, that were put out there by the public health authority. So all of these things are there. It's just, there's a sense of self-policing here. There's a sense of social shame here as well. That if you're seen to be out in the street when you shouldn't be out in the street, or if you're seen to be doing things that you shouldn't be doing, your neighbours will get onto you. You know, this we talk about angry notes here, you know, that people pin them up in apartment buildings. If you're making too much noise at night, or if you, you, know, you don't clean the fluff out of the dryer in the communal uh, laundry rooms, that kind of thing, you will get the angry note. And this society is built on the angry note. And that sense of social shame is what keeps an awful lot of people in line when it comes to things like this. And there is also that sort of, uh, it's almost a chauvinism where, look, at we've been asked to do this and now everybody's going to do it because that's what we do. That's what Swedes do, you know, and anybody who doesn't do that is being unpatriotic and they're, you know, they're, they're letting the side down, basically, you know, and that's the kind of thing that's been kept there. But the idea that this is somehow some sense of change, that people have been given their freedom. No, no, no. This is still very, very sort of controlled by social mores and by social status and by that kind of social shame. So people are still doing things, but just for a very different reason. And, you know, don't for one second think that if the state here talks the people weren't obeying them they would crack down like a shot you know they were onto people uh that sports holiday was telling you about when we just started talking there they were saying to people look don't go away for easter don't go away in this sports holiday and they looked at the data traffic from mobile phones right because obviously as you go from one mass to another uh your phone links up again and it keeps going sort of seamlessly so they could see people moving around and there was about you know 90 percent of the usual traffic that would leave stockholm just wasn't there because people accepted what uh, the, the the government was saying and what the authorities were saying more so than the government look at stay at home. They bought into that. Now, if they'd done that on the sports holiday and everybody had gone up to the mountains and skied and infected one another, Easter would have been shut down. Easter would have been locked down for Stockholmers, you know? And Tegnell actually said that to me as well. He, he said that, um, I can't ever see a situation where we lock down the whole country because basically from about an hour north of Stockholm and up, you're talking about reindeer and forest and a few people dotted out around the place. It's very sparse up that part of the country, you know? But he was saying we might lock down 
a city or we might lock down a region if we have to do it. But the idea somehow that people are wandering around here, you know, free to do whatever they want, you know, yeah, legally maybe, but there's a, there's a whole bunch of other structures there that are keeping control of people. Mm. So finally, what should people then take from the Swedish case and what shouldn't they? Um, I think they should take a couple of things, right? One is that everything Sweden is doing is, for better or worse, it's evidence-based, right? Everything they do, does nobody just does things for a political whim or does nobody does this? This is not an experiment. This is not a Petri dish here. They're doing this all based on data for better or worse. The other is the assumption that they somehow don't know something that's, they somehow know uh, something that nobody else does. No, they have exactly the same data as everybody else. They're just taking a different view of, of how to do it. And the third thing is then that there's no need to lock people down to get them to do what you want to do when you can just ask them to do it. You know, like we always say that in politics, you know, sometimes the easiest way to get somebody's vote is to ask them for it. And that's literally what you do here. You ask the people and you say, you know, you, now you don't do it every day of the week. You do it when the country needs it. You do it when there's a national emergency. And you say, look, it, we need you to, to, to sort this out. We need you to behave in this way for the foreseeable future. And again, by doing that in a sort of a sustainable way, that has been the sort of the key. I mean, I'm not going to call it a success. I cannot look at what has happened in uh, the retirement homes here and think that that's a success. But I think from a societal point of view, you, there has been a very, very unified and a very, very calm reaction to COVID-19. Time will tell if it was the right mitigation strategy and if it was the right reaction. But so far, it has worked for them. Philip O'Connor, thank you so much for that. I feel a lot more informed. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think I, I, I've got a clearer picture now than I ever have um, of the Swedish stuff because there's a lot of people riding from afar but you're right there on the ground and I really appreciate you taking the time to um, chat through all that's going on from uh, from uh, Sweden. Thank you My very pleasure. much. And just, just to tell your listeners that I, I, you'll find me at Philip O'Connor on Twitter. If anybody has a question uh, about this, if there's anything anybody wants to know or anything else like that, feel free to hit me up over there. It's a lifetime service, but only for listeners to this podcast. Hey, nice one. Take care. You too.